A time is coming when nations will rise against nations. Famines will dry the world. Earthquakes will shake the foundations of the earth. A time of great evil and of great distress. The beginning of the end of the world. The end of time. The end of sin. Then, when no one expects, heaven will open. Jesus will return. The earth will be made new. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So keep watch and be ready for the beginning of the end. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for all of you who are watching online today. We're so grateful that you are from places all over the world. We welcome you to Sugar Creek Baptist Church today. And for all four of our campuses, you are watching online as well for this part of the service. And we're so grateful that you've joined us and you are a part of this time with us. Last week, we, I introduced uh, the th three English services with a pretty somber note. Uh, one of our uh, staff members had passed away just a few hours before, and only an hour before the first service, we became aware of that. Liz had been uh, one of our worship leaders for a year and a half, and on top of that, she was a ministry assistant for the Richmond-Rosenberg campus. And she'd become a part of our lives, and we all knew her and loved her. She had a beautiful voice, but just a beautiful woman inside and out. And we had grown so to love Liz. There was a car accident, and uh, it took her life. This last Thursday was the memorial service for her and her family's church. And uh, Pastor Hector Sotelo, our worship pastor for the Spanish ministry, and Pastor Juan Carlos Heredia, who is our uh, Spanish pastor, took part in that service. And it was a wonderful tribute to the Lord and a wonderful tribute to her. It was really such a moving, powerful service. So what happened was she had been with her family for a few days in the valley. It's close to Brownsville. And she was uh, hurrying back, getting, going to get back in time for our services here. So she'd gotten a little bit of a late start. And she, around 12 to 1 o'clock in the morning, had just arrived going through on Highway 59 at Beasley, which is just on the other side of uh, Rosenberg. So she was almost home. But she blew a tire. And it caused the car to go out of control and she died in the crash. I really would love it and so appreciate it if you'd be remembering her family, her, her parents, her siblings, so many people that are so close to Liz and as they go through these days, these are difficult, hurtful days as you can imagine. But time of, of thanking God for her and the amazing life that Liz lived. 
There was a very wealthy man many years ago who lived, his name was James Gordon Bennett, and he had just tons of money. It was just unbelievable. He owned two lavish apartments in Paris. He, he owned a French country estate just outside of Paris. He owned three mansions in the United States. I don't know why one person needs six houses, but for some reason he felt like he did. So he had bought all these houses and he said to all the employees of all that kept all the houses, I want you to act like that every single day I might arrive at the house you're keeping. I will never call ahead. You'll never know the day that I arrive, but I want you to take care of each house as though I were staying here on this day or though I was going to arrive on this day and everything was ready. And they did every day of his life. They did and they kept it up just amazingly well. Jesus has asked us to do the same thing, to live every day of our life as though this is the day. This is the day he's coming. Today he is coming. And we are to live that way every day that this is the day of the return of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, we know as we watch this whole world that seems to be spiraling out of control, it is crazy what is happening. And we think to ourselves, it can't keep going this way. This, this thing cannot, this whole unraveling can't keep going forever and something big is coming. Something powerful is coming and the world will be different. And that is exactly what the Bible says will happen. That one day suddenly with no announcement ahead of time, no awareness of the day that he is coming, that Jesus Christ will come back, that the, that the curtains will open and center stage will be King Jesus. Jesus said it that very way when he said in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 64, but I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus talking, he said, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. And we've been going through what the Bible teaches about the end times, the beginning of the end. And we've discovered that it is not just one event. The second coming of Christ is not just one event. It is a series of events. That the Bible says that the world will grow increasingly wicked, increasingly dark, and, and it will be a very difficult day in the time in which Jesus comes back. And the Bible then says that there is going to be a coming of Christ called the rapture of the church in which suddenly we are changed and we disappear. Hundreds of millions and billions of us just disappear and we're gone and we meet Jesus Christ in the air. We are transformed from our earthly body to our spiritual body and man, we will be able to fly and we will meet him in the air and he'll take us immediately back to heaven. Then there will be the beginning of a seven years of tribulation. The Bible calls it the tribulation time, the great tribulation, all the woes of Jacob, all these names that he gives to this seven year period of time. And Daniel explains it seven years. And John in the book of Revelation, in the New Testament explains it seven years. 
And all of these events, they lay them out of what will happen during what is called the tribulation period. And an evil man will arise, the leader, a great world leader that John in the book of Revelation calls the Antichrist. At the end of those seven years and all the things that are laid out in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel and other places, then Christ will come back. And there will be a real battle called the Battle of Armageddon. And there will be a real 1,000-year reign of Christ called the Millennial Reign of Christ. And today, I want to talk about those two events. We're wrapping up the series today. And this message, quite honestly, should be two or three messages going through all the details. And I've actually taught it being three messages in the past. But I have condensed all of this as we bring it together in one message. So I got to talk fast. And you got to write those fill in the blanks fast. So you better be watching because we're going to run through this very quickly. But I want you to see how the Bible brings all of this together. And it begins with this idea. When King Jesus appears, what will he be like? Well, you can forget the, the, the pictures of the meek and mild suffering servant. Yes, he was when he came the first time, but no, he is not now. And those pictures that we saw in Sunday school growing up with Jesus with blue eyes and fair skin, well, they were never true. He didn't have blue eyes. He was Jewish for crying out loud. He had brown eyes and he had olive skin. Those pictures were never true. But notice how he's described now as he comes back. Jesus will come out of heaven as a conqueror. Notice what he says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. He is a presence. He is powerful, and he comes out of heaven. And verse 11 says, he is coming as a righteous judge. With justice, he judges and makes war. He is coming to make war against sin and make war against rebellion and claim what is his on this earth. Third, he comes as God in flesh. Notice how he's described in verse 13. And his name is the word of God. Do you remember John who writes the book of Revelation, but he also writes the gospel of John. And you remember in John chapter one and verse one, as John is explaining about Jesus, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, God, took on a body and he came as the living, breathing word of God. And notice what he says in verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You get the idea, don't you? As he is describing Jesus coming out of heaven, he is coming with greatness, with grandeur, with glory. This is what he will look like. So what will then be, when King Jesus returns, what will then be the sequence of events that unfold? Well, there's really many of them. So let's take a look. First, all of us who have already been raptured 
to heaven. Before the tribulation begins, Christ comes back. We are changed from our physical bodies to our spiritual bodies. We meet him in the air. He takes us immediately back to heaven. Seven years have gone by, the seven years of tribulation. Now when Christ comes back, he brings us back with him at his second coming. So look at Revelation 19, verse 14. The armies of heaven... We're following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, when you read the context in chapter 19 of who are these individuals that are in fine linen, white and clean, they are Christ followers. All through chapter 19, they're not angels, they're Christ followers. So we're the ones who are coming back with him. The armies are coming out of heaven. We're not a little church. We are a, we're a mighty army. God is using us and all the armies of God, all the churches that have walked with God and loved him and taught his word, we're all coming back with him on white horses. Boy, you better get a hold of that horseback riding because you don't want to fall out of heaven, you know, fall off that saddle as you're coming out of heaven. You don't want to do that. I've said that joke, I don't know how many times now, and um, I still love it. So second, second, creation will respond to its creator's coming. Matthew 24 is one of the greatest chapters in the entire New Testament about the second coming of Christ because it's Jesus talking. It's Jesus telling his disciples what will happen. And he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days. What are the distress of those days? It's the seven years of tribulation. He has just sort of walked through those seven years with us as he's talking to his disciples. And he says, as soon as they're finished... The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. In other words, when Christ comes back, all of creation is impacted. All of creation is affected. Third, all of those who are saved during the tribulation period who are still alive will be gathered to safety. Matthew 24, verse 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. All will come together. Here is all the church for 2,000 years or however much time before he comes back. Here's all the church, and we've already been gathered in heaven. We've all come back with him, and now he gathers up all those who've been saved during the tribulation period, and we are all together. Fourth, all the world will see Jesus Christ appear physically at the same time. See how Jesus describes it in Matthew 24, verse 30? And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Why will they mourn? Because they will realize Jesus all this time was the Son of God. He, it was true. And I've picked the wrong party. I've gone to the wrong side. I have picked the Antichrist. And when they see him, they will know they are doomed 
and they will know it is over for them. And what is amazing is, is that all the world will see it all at the same time. I mean, physically, Jesus could have performed a miracle and somehow appeared everywhere all over the world. But today with cameras, he just has to come to one place and all these cameras are on him and now it's being broadcast all over the world and all the world sees Jesus coming back all at the same time. And now look at this, Revelation chapter one, verse seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And notice this next phrase, even those who pierced him. I want you to underline that phrase, even those who pierced him. It's very important. I'm going to be talking about that in just a couple of minutes. But even those who pierced him and, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him even so, amen. There is a fifth thing that will happen. All the world in mourning knowing they're doomed. But the fifth thing is this, the Jewish people will finally realize that Jesus always was, is the Messiah. And they will now accept him as their Messiah. What do you get that? There are many places in the Old Testament in which the, there's a prophecy about the first coming of Jesus and prophecies about the second coming of Jesus that have dual purposes. Those passages of Scripture are somewhat fulfilled in some historical moment uh, just out there not too far, but also are referencing the coming of Christ, the Messiah. And it's for the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And this passage is one of those. In Zechariah chapter 12 to chapter 14, this whole passage of scripture goes back and forth between an historical event that happens not that far into the future, but then the battle, a description of the battle of Armageddon, where it is so obvious throughout the passage, this is something that is coming at the very end of the world. So look at what it says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. And I pour out, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me. Stop for just a second. Who's the me? They will look on me. The me is God. He is the one that is giving Zechariah all of this information. But as he is giving this information, he says, and they will look on me, the one that they have pierced. How does somebody pierce God? By piercing the son of God. By piercing God in flesh. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. Now, that has no significance in, his, in history at any time. And it is one of those passages, that, that, those phrases in a passage that says, this has a, another fulfillment with it. And John in, John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says this, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And John is take going back to Zechariah chapter 12, 10 and 11, and he is bringing that passage He's bringing that phrase into the whole explanation of the second coming of Christ. 
And he is saying this phrase, they will see the one they pierce, is a reference to the battle of Armageddon. It's a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. And so listen to what he says. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And on that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Why the weeping? Well, for the world, it was Jesus all along, and we've picked the wrong side. But for the Jewish people, there, is other, there are other passages that talk about this very moment, not just this passage in which they see Jesus coming, and it's the end, it's, the, it's the, right at the battle of Armageddon, and they see it was Jesus all along. He was our Messiah all along. And they had missed him and and their forefathers had missed him. Verse 10, they they will look on the one they have pierced. That verse was written five, 600 years before Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. Israel will realize that Jesus was the Messiah all along. And in mass, the Jewish people will turn to him for salvation. Now, this is not a Mark Hartman only interpretation. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 11 and 12. In Romans 11 and 12, I hope that you'll, you'll read, or 10 and 11, I hope you'll read those two chapters after today. That in Romans chapter 10 and 11, Paul is saying, I want you to understand now that the church is emerging, I want you to know where the people of Israel, the Jewish people fit in the plan of God. God, because they have rejected their Messiah, God has set them aside, but only for a while. Only for a while. So that he could raise up another group of people that is the the church. But there is a day in which the time of the church will be done, and that is the rapture of the church in which he takes us out. He says, then God will regraft them back in. And he is describing, he's helping us to understand there is another day for Israel, for the Jewish people. And then he wraps it up in chapter 11 and verses 26 to 28 and listen to what it says. And so all Israel will be saved. It doesn't mean all Jewish people of all times, but he's saying that all those people right then and there at this moment that are the Jewish people, and it's, been a, it's a terrible moment, it's a bleak moment, and all of a sudden Jesus comes and rescues them, and then they will turn their heart by faith to Jesus Christ. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. Now stop right there. Paul is only talking about in the first century. He's only talking about the moment that he is living out right then in which the Jewish people were pushing away the church. That's the only moment in time in which he's talking about and to you for the gospel's sake, they're enemies. 
Everywhere he would go and he would begin new churches, it was the Judaizers that would just be pushing against him and, and, and uh, trying to stop him. And he is only referencing first century. He's not referencing now. Jewish people are not our enemies. This was a period, a point in time that Paul was writing from. If there have been any enemies, it's been Christians mistreating Jewish people over the last 1,800 years, not the other way around. He is not trying to get us to look at Jewish people as enemies. He's only giving a reference at that moment. But then notice what else he says. He says, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved the Jewish people are loved on account of the patriarchs. I still believe that promise that God gave to Abraham, it's irrevocable. Those who bless Israel, God blesses, and those who curse Israel, God curses. God made a covenant with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's call and commitment to Israel is irrevocable. And one day, this whole battle of Armageddon and Jesus suddenly appears and the Jewish people, he comes to the rescue and he see, they see him and they realize, oh my soul, it was Jesus all along. And in mass, they give their heart to Christ. Six, the battle of Armageddon will take place. The Antichrist and his forces will be defeated. There's a tons of passages about this. We don't have time for all of them. There are two battlefields for the battle of Armageddon. The first of those battlefields in which Jesus comes and conquers the Antichrist happens in the valley of Jezreel, known as Megiddo. Thus the name Armageddon. The, Megiddo is the city that is, was ancient city that was up on the south ridge of that valley. And if you've ever been to Israel, that's part of the tour. You, you'll go to Megiddo, and boy, you should. You should. It is an amazing sight up there. And to see the history of it all and to stand up there. I've been there many times. And as I've looked out over that valley, I have tried to imagine. It's a huge valley. It's humongous. And I've tried to imagine filled with, with military, filled with armies coming to destroy the Jewish people. And Jesus sweeps down and he saves them at the last minute. What is interesting is that on the other side of that valley, the north side of the valley, there is Nazareth on the ridge. Nazareth, the place where Jesus grew up. And I can imagine, the Bible says Jesus grew in knowledge and understanding, wisdom, favor with God and man. That moment that it, he realized the significance of this valley that he looked down over every single day, and he realized that one day he would be coming out of the sky with us to that great battle. I just wonder what was going through his mind as he overlooked that valley, the valley of Armageddon, because it was the location of Megiddo. The second battle that takes place with this battle of Armageddon, the second place is the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, Zechariah 14, verse four. And on 
that day, his, he's talking about the Messiah, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. I've stood on the Mount of Olives. I have imagined this scene that all of a sudden when Jesus comes and he has defeated the Antichrist at uh, the Battle of Armageddon in, by Megiddo and he then flies over to the, uh, to the Mount of Olives and he touches his feet on that mountain, suddenly it splits in two. Half of it going to the north, half of it going to the south. And I understand why it is. Because when you are standing there, you can see the eastern gates that the scripture says Jesus will go through when he returns. But the eastern gates you see are not the eastern gates that Jesus will go through. That is the rebuilt wall. But underneath them are the real eastern gates. And in order to get to them, you got to split the mountain half and half with part of it going to the north and part of it going to the south. And all of a sudden you see those eastern gates and he will walk through the real eastern gates. Oh my soul, I get so excited about this, I can't stand it. Looking across that Kidron Valley, what will happen? I want to spend another day talking about this, but I'm going to keep moving. So the seventh thing that will happen is that Satan will be thrown into the bottomless pit. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. You see, there's no room for Satan in the millennial reign of Christ. There's no room for sin in the millennial reign of Christ. And he is bound and put away, has no influence while Jesus rules in Jerusalem. Here is the last thing. I got to really hurry. When King Jesus returns, what will the kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ, what will the kingdom look like? There have been a few times I, I've talked to friends of mine, just godly men, love the Lord, and we talk and we talk about this subject. And, and they say to me, I don't really believe there is a literal millennial reign of Christ, a thousand year reign of Christ. And I asked them, well, why? And they've said, every one of them said, because I don't see a purpose of it. I don't understand why. I mean, just he comes back and we go to heaven and all that. I don't understand the thousand-year reign of Christ. And I've listened to that and I've just chuckled and I thought, good grief. When was the will of God up for a vote? Well, I don't really see a need, so let's don't do it. No. There's a whole lot of things that have happened in history that I didn't see much, much need for. Because I'm not God. You and I would make terrible gods. It's, it's really good that we aren't. It's God that decides what and why, and I have seen God takes his time. And he picks perfect moments. And he is the one that says this moment is going to happen, and there is a value in Jesus ruling and reigning in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And if God says it, it settles it for me. So I don't know what the debate is. Jesus will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. During the millennial reign of Christ, all those in the world will worship Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. 
It'll be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we might walk in his paths. And I think about Jesus there on the throne in Jerusalem and how he has loved Jerusalem. It was there in what we call the period of the Old Testament in which Jesus caused the miracles to happen for the sake of Jerusalem. It was there six miles from Jerusalem and Bethlehem that he was born. It was there in Jerusalem he went to as a little boy. His parents took him to the temple. It was there that he walked into Jerusalem and he performed so many miracles and he proclaimed the word of God. And it was there that he, on the back of a donkey, he rode into Jerusalem declaring he is the Messiah. And it was there he was beaten and whipped and nailed to a cross. And it was there he was laid in a grave. And it was there he rose again from that grave. And it was there that he ascended into heaven. He loves this place. And now he comes to rule and reign in this place. During the millennial reign of Christ, Jesus will reign as the absolute authority on the earth. Isaiah 2, verse 3 and 4, and the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And during the millennial reign of Christ, the world will finally know peace on earth. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That which the angels had declared to the shepherds at the first coming of Christ will be realized in real life in the millennial reign of Christ. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, and they will beat their swords into plowshares. Don't need these swords anymore. And their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's never happened before, but oh, it's coming. It's coming, and amen, it is. And it's not just peace between people and people. It is peace with all of God's creation. Look at what he said in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 to 9. The wolf will live with the lamb, not eat the lamb, will live with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. Do not do that right now. That will not turn out well at all. You're going to have to wait for the millennial reign of Christ. It'll turn out much better then. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The earth... I've heard people say this is some scene in heaven. What? The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And during the millennial reign of Christ, people will have families and be involved in work without the hardships, Isaiah chapter 65. And during the millennial reign of Christ, the people will experience the incredible closeness with God before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. I got to tell you, during the millennial reign of Christ, I'm moving to Jerusalem. I love America, but I'm moving to Jerusalem. <laughs> All of these promises he's made for us are coming. 
a literal battle of Armageddon, a literal millennial reign of Christ. <clears throat> there was a, a movie, I don't know if you saw it, called Hachi, A Dog's Tale. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's based on a real story in Japan, and in the, in the movie, Parker Wilson is a college music professor, and he gets off the commuter train right by his house, and there is a stray puppy, and he sees the puppy, and he's trying to find the owner. They can't find the owner. So he and this puppy become forever friends, and they love each other. They're so close, and, and every time that puppy would hear at a certain time of the day, would hear the whistle of the train, he knew that his friend Parker was going to be on that train and would come off that train. And so he would run from his house and he would run to the platform in order to greet his friend Parker. But one day, and he did that for years, but one day Parker had a heart attack and died at work and he didn't come back. And there was no communicating that to this dog and so the dog every day would do the same thing. And when the whistle would blow at the train at a certain time, he would, he would go to that platform waiting for Parker to get off the, off the train, but he never got off. But as the story goes, as the movie goes, I don't know all the details. That dog kept doing it day after day for 10 years until he died. And all I am telling you the story is because I'm asking you the question, are you being faithful to Jesus in waiting and anticipation of the return of Christ? Because what if he comes today? The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I actually believe that verse word for word. For God so loved the whole world. And he loves you. And he's calling you, would you come and give your heart to him? Online as you're watching, wherever you are in the world, the Holy Spirit of God is putting that want to in your heart and that want to is him. It is God's spirit drawing you to him. And this morning, if you would commit your heart by faith to Christ, he will save you and forgive you and cleanse you and he will come to live inside of you and he'll change you from the inside out. And when he comes back, you will go with him. Give your heart to Christ. And maybe you're saying, I don't know exactly how to do it. Get on your knees and ask him to forgive you of your sin and especially the sin of rejecting him and commit by faith your heart to Jesus Christ. But in a few moments, you're going to see a next step center, virtual next step center. Make that call and talk to one of our ministers about how you can know Jesus Christ as your savior too. No matter what campus you are on right now, there is a physical Next Step Center. In just a moment, when I pray, you will give, be given the opportunity to go to the Next Step Center, the physical one, talk to one of our ministers, and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior today. Maybe it is to join the church. Maybe it is to just, I just need prayer. Whatever it is, go to the Next Step Center. Let that be your next step, and we'll help you there.
Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. We thank you so much for God, what you've done in us and how you have helped us and blessed us and changed our life and continue to change us from the inside out. And we take your word literally and seriously. And we want to live a life that is ready for the return of Jesus. And we ask, Father, that you would help us as we live each day honoring you with our lives. And oh, Father, for those that are listening to me right now that do not know Christ as Savior, not sure that they know Christ as Savior, may this be the day that they settle this issue, talking to someone at the Next Step Center, moving hearts. I want to commit my heart by faith to Christ. I want to join this church. Whatever, God, you, your spirit is moving in their spirit to do, may this be the day they say yes to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.